Welcome to RUF. Um, my name is Sammy. I'm the campus minister here. Uh, this is your first time. We're really glad you're here with us. Uh, we're actually, you came on kind of a weird night. We're, we're actually in the middle of a study in the book of Leviticus. Um, Leviticus is, we've been saying every, like for the last couple times, that part of why we're doing Leviticus is, I don't know why I'm, this feels very professorial, I'm not going to put it down. Uh, Leviticus is our, your generation's, our time's excuse to not believe the Bible. It's what Nick Offerman, who plays Ron Swanson in Parks and Rec, he, he calls it the most effed up book in the world. Because when you, if you've ever looked or dealt with any part of Leviticus, then you know it, it's got a lot of weird, hard stuff in there. A lot of weird things that God seems to ask of his people that we don't know what to do with or how to make sense of. And so first week we kind of did an overview. Last week we looked at... Um, the food laws, because those are kind of weird. And tonight we're looking at the clean laws. And so we're not, we don't actually have a passage because we're, we're doing a sweeping. We're basically looking at Leviticus 12 through 15. And I don't want to read that for you because that would just take all night. Uh, also, I wanted to just own, Anna Howard told me to own. Um, it feels really funny to be preaching the clean laws with these massive pit stains. Uh, I'm working on a new deodorant regime, but I'm just going to go ahead and own that. I feel very unclean as I'm preaching. Um, and I, I smell good. My new deodorant smells good. It's just not stopping the sweat from pouring through. So let's just awkwardly embrace this moment together. Um, so Leviticus, the clean laws. Let me pray for us, since we don't have a passage. And then I'll actually kind of dive into uh, what I want to talk about tonight. Let's pray first. <clears throat> uh, Jesus, we thank you for Leviticus. We thank you that you want us to know uh, more about your work uh, on our behalf through this book. I pray that... As we do this kind of quick run through in this in this quick series through this book, that you would meet us in this place. Uh, we we thank you for your word, even the hard parts of your word that force us to think, that force us to wrestle with ourselves, that force us to wrestle with you. Uh, we thank you that your word is living and active, and it has uh, power uh, because it's from you for us. And I pray tonight as we look at these clean laws um, that you would meet us in this place, and that you would minister to us. Convict us where we need to be convicted. Lift us up and encourage us where we need to be encouraged. And we pray these things, Lord Christ, in your name. Amen. So we're into this section. This is probably the the hardest part of Leviticus in some ways because it has a lot of weird things that we don't know what to do with. Everything from uh, dealing with periods to ejaculations. We're just going to go for the awkwardness of this book. And and God kind of giving his people specific rules about what to do in these situations, and we're going to unpack a lot of that. But when I was thinking about this, I was thinking about recently the idea of that we still have, we don't have clean and unclean laws in the same way that Leviticus does, but we still have things that gross us out, things that, you know, our own categories in 2017 of what is clean and not clean. I was thinking about today, it was a weird thought, one of my weirdest and most shameful and kind of funny high school youth group moments was I took a dare, this is probably my sophomore year, some of you, I think I've shared this with some of you, I took a dare where I said, if you'll pay me $10, I said this to the whole, my youth minister in this youth group, I said, for $10, uh, this guy, Kenneth, if Kenneth 
chews up a piece of pizza and then spits it out into a plate and then I eat it, I'll eat it for $10 basically. And they were like, yes, we are in. And I was like, all right, I'm in. So Kenneth, this is gross, just bear with me. Kenneth takes this piece of pizza from Papa John's, he chews it, chews it up, it happens to be pepperoni, which is a detail coming, which I vividly remember. <laughs> so he takes this piece of pizza, he chews it up, spits it out into a plate. And I'm like, all right, I got to be a man of my word. So I go for it. I start eating it, swallowing it. And then the last piece was this curled pepperoni with a, with a pool of his spit in it. <laughs> and I looked at my youth minister and I was like, that too? And he was like, yes. <laughs> so then I put the pepperoni in my mouth and the spit dribbled down my throat. And I almost threw up. Uh, and I didn't. And I got 10 bucks. Which was the, and, and this is the kicker. I also got mono because Kenneth didn't tell me that he had mono. True story. And, uh, and I had mono for several months afterwards. Um, <laughs> true story. Um, but thinking about that we still have categories, that, that's disgusting. That's something that even as I tell that story, it's disgusting. Um, there's this guy, Richard Beck. He's actually an experimental psychologist. And he wrote this book called Unclean. And he talks about this. Here, here's what he says. He's talking about the idea of, he calls it disgust theology, which is fascinating. He says this. Then he applies it to us. He says this. Imagine, he talks about how everyone swallows their own saliva. But then he says this. Imagine spitting into a Dixie cup. And after doing so, how would you feel if you were asked to drink the contents of the cup? He said, when I heard uh, the world expert on the psychology of disgust and contamination discuss his Dixie Cup research, I'd been puzzling over the fragility of hospitality, the psychological obstacles to what Miroslav Volf calls the will to embrace. Why do churches, ostensibly following a Messiah who broke broke bread with tax collectors and sinners, so often retreat into practices of exclusion in the quarantine of uh, gated communities. Why is it so difficult to create missional churches? What I'm trying to get at is, is we're looking at these clean and unclean laws, and I want to just start from the bat to say we still wrestle with these ideas, but I want to look at this passage tonight and see what God has to say through us through them, go back in time to Leviticus, and then bring us back to our time now. So three ways I want to do this. First, I want to talk about the problem of the clean laws. Second, I want to talk about the point of the clean laws. And I really was trying to do like a two-point sermon, but I just couldn't because I'm a three-point guy. So lastly, I want to talk about how the clean laws point us to Jesus. So first, the problem of the clean laws. Second, the point of the clean laws. And then lastly, how the clean laws, uh, how these laws point us to Jesus. So first, think with me for a second about the problem of the clean laws. Now, I'm not going to unpack every single verse in 12 through 15, but I do want to give a basic overview. 12 is basically dealing with the uh, uncleanness of childbirth and the flow of blood that came from that. 13 and 14 are dealing with lepers and actually a celebration of when lepers are clean and and made clean and come back into the camp. And then 15 is dealing with bodily discharges. There's just a lot of weird stuff in this, but let's kind of unpack what that means. Basically, when you look at 12 through 15, you've got three different categories that God is caring about. Here they are. Here's the first one. He cares about loss of life. Second, he cares about the protection of life. And then last, he cares about the sacredness of life. So this is kind of what these chapters mean. First thing with me about the the loss of life. These are the weird parts in 12 and 15. They're about childbirth and periods, basically. This is going to be several uncomfortable moments, so let's just say that off the bat. All right. Uh, Here's what they're not saying, these chapters. They're not saying that somehow God thinks pregnancy and periods are some kind of punishment that God considers dirty. 
Rather, what they have to do, uh, deal with is kind of like the food laws last week. They have to do with loss of life. Essentially, the lost blood, if we were to go to Leviticus 17.14, we find God saying the life of every creature is its blood. Its blood is its life. And so the loss of blood is the loss of life. And remember, God is saying the distinction of clean and unclean is not sinful and not sin- and like righteous. The distinction is ritually clean and ritually unclean. And he's saying he wants his people to ritually be in these rhythms of acknowledging life and also shying away from death. Death and what's associated with death, hence the loss of blood, is what makes, um, what, what makes one or made one ritually Unclean, And what I want you to know is, what I want you to see is, remember, Leviticus, to understand it, one of the keys to understanding it is God is dealing with these vivid pictures that are meant to be reminders of timeless truths. And one of the things that he's saying is that the loss of blood is a vivid picture of the brokenness of the fall. That death is unnatural and the loss of blood is unnatural and it's a result and consequence of the fall. Hence, it brings uncleanness. So first, in 12 and 15, the loss of blood was about the loss of life. And then second, but chapter 13 and 14 are about the protection of life. Um, This is where we're dealing with lepers. And again, God is not saying, get these disgusting people away from me. It's not that scene in Game of Thrones. I don't know if you're a Game of Thrones person, but remember when Cersei has that shameful moment with the priests where she's caught in her uncleanness and her incest, and she has to walk through the town naked, and all the people are yelling, shame, shame, shame. And it's a horrific scene. This is not what, God's, God, this is not what God is doing. God is taking these people who have a disease, a skin disease, and he's placing them, he's quarantining them outside of the camp, not to shame them, but that they might find healing prayerfully, and then also that their disease might not spread within the camp. So since they were quarantined for the protection of life, this was about God protecting and preserving and healing and restoring life, which is why we often skip through 14. It's funny how there are these beautiful passages in Leviticus, like love your neighbor as yourself, that we kind of gloss over. But 14 is one of the most beautiful because 14 is all about how to celebrate these lepers when they were cleansed and come back and came back into the camp. And there was this huge celebration that, they, that the people would throw as these men and women were restored from their leprosy and healed and brought back in to the fold. But it was about the protection and healing of life. So first, about the loss of life. Second, about the protection of life. But then lastly, they're also about the chapter 15 is about the <laughs> sacredness of life. This is where we get into the weird stuff about bodily emissions especially ejaculation. And again, maybe you're here and you're like, okay, here we go. This is the problem. The God of the Bible heaps shame upon us sexually, and it's repressive. This message, the biblical sexual ethic is repressive, and it's maybe not just repressive, it's destructive. And again, I want you to see this is not what it's about. It's not God saying this is dirty, sex is dirty, ejaculations are dirty. It's about him saying that life, again, what leaves the body in, the, in, this, in this way, that life is sacred, that sex is sacred. In other words, God, this is the best way I can come up to say it, that God, he cares about births and weird skin diseases and periods and ejaculations and discharges because he cares about life. And he cares about our bodies. And this is weird for us, I think. Like, I don't, we grew up in kind of a Western world that doesn't know what to do with bodies. 
and we don't know what to do with life as being sacred, partly because sometimes we treat our bodies with contempt. And often that's because we treat our bodies as consumers. And God is saying, I'm not going to let you do that. I want you to understand the sacredness of these bodily things. They're not just bodies, but they're your very life. Now, here's what I want you to see. This is what I was thinking about. Why is this hard for us? Like, why is this hard for me to even know what to do with? And here's what I think is hard for us. Modern medicine is a beautiful thing. Like, I am thankful that when my, we have four kids, I am thankful that not in one of those births did I ever fear that my wife was going to die through a loss of blood. Like, I'm thankful for good doctors, good OBs. I'm also thankful my youngest daughter I've shared before, she has a condition that requires a shunt. She literally would not be alive apart from modern medicine. Like, modern medicine is what makes her life possible. I am for, I am for uh, shunts and MRIs. and do- Like, modern medicine is a beautiful thing. But here's what I think it does to us. I think it desensitizes us to our own deaths. And I think it desensitizes us, too, to our participation. This is a key, you have to understand, our participation in the death of the world. Um, in other words, it, it desensitizes us to the physical consequences of the fall, which in turn desensitizes us to the consequences of our sin. And this is the thing that you have to understand about Leviticus. And through 12 through 15, what you have to understand is how searching these clean laws were. In other words, every single person living in this time, every single person living in the time of Leviticus would have at some point in their life been considered unclean. Part of what God is doing is getting them in touch with the rhythm, the, the disturbed rhythm that the fall brought in the brokenness of the world that leads to death. And I want you to see that uncleanness was inescapable. Every Israelite in this time would have felt and known being unclean and called unclean and had to go outside of the camp and go and, and, and make the sacrifice to the priest to be made clean again. Every single would have touched every single person. And I want you to see that this is supposed to be, again, a vivid picture of the way that sin touches us. That it is this thing that is all about us, that comes from within us, but it's also this thing that is bigger than us, that lives and exists in systems, which is why one of the weirdest parts in Leviticus 12 through 15 is entire houses could be considered unclean because they were participating somehow in the death or destruction of the world. But I'm not sure that we, that we always feel that uncleanness. Again, I think sometimes we're desensitized. Um, I was reading, I was going back through, there's a scene in, in Macbeth in one of the most famous monologues from Lady Macbeth. And she uh, can't come to terms with the things that she's done and participated in, the blood that's on her hands, the things that she has participated in that have happened that have kind of come through her. And there's a scene where she's begun sleepwalking, and she was, she's begun, she's begun uh, obsessively washing her hands. And here's how the scene goes. The, her, um, gent, called a gentlewoman, which I guess is just her helper, comes, gets the doctor. And here's the, how the monologue goes. The doctor says, uh, what is it? They, they catch her sleepwalking. And he, he goes to her and he says, what is it that she does now? Look how she rubs her hands. And the, the gentlewoman says, it's an accustomed action with her to seem thus washing her hands. I have known her to continue in this for a quarter of an hour. And then Lady Macbeth comes into the scene as her monologue. She said, here's a spot, yet here's a spot. And the doctor says, hark, she speaks. I will set down what comes from her to satisfy my remembrance the more strongly. And here's the part I love. Lady Macbeth says, out, damned spot, out, I say. Hell is murky. What need we fear who knows it when none can call our power to account? Yet who would have thought the old man to have had so much blood in him? And the doctor says, do you mark that? And she, Lady Macbeth keeps going. She says, what will these hands, what will these hands ne'er be clean? No more, oh that my lord, no more, oh that. 
You mar all this with starting. Here's the smell of the blood still. All the perfumes of Arabia will not sweeten this little hand. Oh, oh, oh. And the doctor says, what a sigh, what a sigh is there. The heart is sorely charged. But I love the, the picture of Lady Macbeth screaming, out damned spot. Out, I feel my uncleanness. Out damned spot. Do you, do you feel your uncleanness? I'm not sure that we always do. And that's part of the problem of the clean laws, that the clean laws are meant to make us feel our uncleanness, our, our own involvement in our own death and destruction and also the death and destruction that sin brings into the world. And this leads us secondly into the point of the clean laws. <coughs> we got to go a little bit big picture here. we got to like pan out a little bit and go a little bit bird's eye view. Because to understand Leviticus, you have to understand the function of the law of God in general. And then we're going to kind of come back to see how Leviticus fits there. But the law of God was always supposed to function in these three basic ways. This is what we kind of theologically have, theologians have kind of pointed out over time, that there really are always these three functions of the law of God going on at all times. This is part of how we understand the Old Testament and its purpose and what it means to us. The first one, the first point of the law in general is that it's always showing us something about God's design for humanity. This is where Psalm 119, right? The guy writes this epic poem about the law of God, and all he can say is how beautiful it is and how it leads to life and how he, when he keeps it, it leads to human flourishing. And when we think about the law of God in this sense, it's like a blueprint for humanity. There's a real sense in which the law of God is a blueprint for what we were supposed to be, what we are supposed to be. But then second, it does something else. It's always, in this, on the other hand, it's always doing these three things. It's always, on the other hand, kind of helping preserve humanity from falling headlong into the abyss. Uh, the way you can think about it is, you know, when you're driving in the interstate, if you, I mean, I know you've noticed the big divided highway, and often there are those huge barriers in between the roads and both sides of the interstate, and they're there to limit, to help protect against the death and destruction that breaking the law uh, can bring. Um, and there's a, a real sense in which the law of God functions in that way. It's ingrained into the hearts of, of, of humanity. It's ingrained into our own hearts to help preserve some basic sense of right and wrong. This is where C.S. Lewis and Abolition of Man does this incredible study where he says, basically, when we look at every culture ever, we can see these, this basic morality that seems ingrained in humanity. And we would say, yes, that's part of the function of the law of God. It's like a barrier. It's a blueprint, but it's also a barrier. But then thirdly, it's also doing this other thing, and this is what we're going to talk a lot about in, in, a minute, in a minute. It's also exposing us. It's showing us, if you think about that blueprint, it's showing us how we're, we're not that. It's showing us the places in our hearts, and it's showing us the places in our lives where we're not where we're supposed to be, where we have failed, where we are unclean, where we have failed to be what God wants us to be. The way I, the way I kept thinking about today was, you know, have you, ever, have you ever seen those datelines where they, like, take the black light into the hotel room and they, like, do the black light over the bed? I mean, it's, like, the worst thing. It's the worst, but you can't not look where they take the black light over the hotel bed and expose all kinds of just stains. And it's just gross to watch because you think, I sleep in hotels pretty often, and you can't really get that kind of stain out of a mattress. And we can think about the law like that. Like, the law is, a, is almost like it's a, a black light, but it's over our hearts. It's ever like the hotel bed of our hearts. 
Yeah, I'm going to go with that. The hotel bed of our hearts. And it's exposing the parts of us that don't love God. It's exposing the parts of us that are deeply selfish in ways that we don't want to face. Now, this is big picture. Now we got to zoom back in because part of what's hard about Leviticus is Leviticus isn't exactly just moral law. So we can look at the Ten Commandments and say, okay, that's where the moral law of God for all time is summarized neatly for us. And we can say, oh, all three of those things are happening in the Ten Commandments. Absolutely. We can kind of make more sense of what it means to not commit adultery or not lie. But what in the world does it mean for us to not eat shellfish? What does it mean for us to not grow crops next to each other or not wear shirts that are blended? Like, right? Like how, what do we, this is where people start making fun of Leviticus. Like people literally write books. There are at least two books written by people who tried to keep all the laws in Leviticus and just came out like, like it's a big joke because you can't do it and how stupid it is. And we have to understand, okay, how, how does Leviticus fit into this? And what we have to see is the law of God isn't always so neatly dividable. Because there are certainly laws in Leviticus that are deeply moral. And there are obviously laws in Leviticus that are deeply ritual. So how do we know how to apply which one? Uh, my guy, Chris Wright, who's written the most helpful books on the Old Testament, um, just trying to unpack how do we... Because typically what we do is we just do the easy thing as Christians and say, oh, the God of the Old Testament is just different than the God of the New Testament. Which is such an unsatisfying... Like, you can't have the Bible and be like, that God is old news. There's a new sheriff in town with Jesus. And this guy is like, you know, not... You know, he's passe now. That's not what Jesus does. Jesus certainly quotes and applies the, all the Old Testament to himself. So that's not satisfying. But here's how my guy Chris Wright says it. He's uh, English, and he gives this analogy. It's helpful to me. I'm just going to read it. He says, next time you come to London, ask your taxi driver if he is obeying the law. Doubtless he'll say, yes, Gov, which is just incredible because I wish we could call people Gov and get away with it. Govna. Then ask him, in that case, where his bale of hay and bag of oats are located. Remind him of the English law, never repealed, that requires London-licensed hackney cabs to carry those items for the horses that originally pulled them. Clearly, he stands accused of not literally obeying the law, but he will probably retort, you can't be serious. We all understand that an ancient law passed in the days of horse-drawn transport no longer applies to vehicles with engines. Mind you, it does embody a principle about how to care for a working animal, and that remains relevant. But in the same way, common sense tells us that when Paul, for instance, commands Timothy to endure hardship as a good soldier of Christ, that it's a command that I should seek to obey whenever I face hardship like Timothy. It transfers to me in principle. But when Paul commands Timothy, come before winter, bring my cloak and especially the parchments, we know that it is a local particular command meant for Timothy only. And here's what he says. The idea that all imperative statements in the Bible should be taken literally as if they all apply to me is a nonsensical way of handling scripture. So I want you to see that this is part of how we come to Leviticus. We come with our minds and we come to understand there are certain things that absolutely still in principle apply. And there are things like some of these clean laws that don't apply. Uh, that don't apply in the same way. Let's just think about it for a second. We can see some of these laws show something beautiful about how God cares about humanity. Again, back to the loss of life, the protection of life. We talked last week how God's deep care, part of why the food laws existed, were deeply caring for animals that needed time and space to, to, now I'm losing the word. What's the word when animals multiply? Reproduce. Reproduce. Thanks, guys. For, animals, for these animals to reproduce. And there were animals that were there for eating. There were animals that were there. But God deeply cares. And 
and we can see this in the laws of Leviticus, the way he cares for, the way he cares for women. In 12 and 15, if you were to go and look at the ways that he commands, not this sort of sexist, like degrading view of women, but the Leviticus is full of these beautiful laws that were meant to, to care and let women flourish in the most beautiful ways. Um, but then we can say, second, they're also meant to keep us in touch with the sacredness of life. There are things that we aren't supposed uh, to do, that, that we're supposed to respect and care for our bodies and the bodies of our neighbors, and that our bodies are our, <laughs> our bodies matter, and God cares about them. Um, you know, to quote the great John Mayer, our bodies are wonderlands. <laughs> but let's be careful how we use our hands. That didn't work. Let's take that one back. Um, but also, these laws are also meant to show us what we're going to talk about last. They're meant to show us, sorry for that, they're meant to show us our uncleanness. They're meant to show us our need for cleansing. This is the last thing I want you to see, how the clean laws point us to, to Jesus. Sorry, really went for that. I'm really sorry it didn't work. Uh, how the clean laws point us to Jesus. Um, all right, here's what is beautiful. So we, we typically are not super familiar with Leviticus. But what's fascinating is to be studying this book and then go back to the Gospels. Because these laws are all over Jesus' ministry. Let's think about first how they show up. First, they show up in his life, in the life of his ministry. Uh, They show up in Luke 17, where these ten lepers come to Jesus begging to be made clean, and he makes them clean. And he tells them to go show themselves to the high priest. And they're restored to their community. And then they show up in that weird passage in Mark 5. You remember the woman who's had her period for 12 years? Here's what Mark literally says about her. He says, she had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. And she is desperate and she is bleeding and she smells. This is ancient times. They don't have what we have. She is disgusting and can't do anything about it. No one can help her. And she believes that Jesus can help her. And remember, she just, she doesn't even go up to him because she's so full of shame and she just touches the hem of his garment. And just touching the cleanness of Jesus makes her clean. Just touching the, the wholehearted, the healing, the Jesus makes her clean. Um, this is what you have to see about Jesus. Jesus uses his cleanness to make unclean people clean. Jesus, I love the way that Brian Habeck says it. In, in Jesus' ministry, this is the this is what the Pharisees couldn't stand about Jesus. They had so twisted the Levitical law, they had missed the point. And in Jesus' ministry, the high priests are treated like lepers, and the cleansed lepers are like high priests. And Jesus comes to make the unclean clean, the cleanness of Jesus. He is the high priest who is making the unclean clean. He does it in his ministry, but then even more beautifully, he does it in his death. What's really interesting, the author of, Hebrew, the author of Hebrews nails this in a, in a really small verse, but incredibly theologically packed verse. Because remember, back to Leviticus, when you were unclean, what did you, where did you have to go? Especially the lepers. You had to go, you weren't allowed into the temple. You had the lepers especially had to go outside of the camp. You were removed from the people. You were isolated outside of the camp. And here's what the author of Hebrews says about Jesus when he went to the cross, he says this about Jesus in Hebrews 13. He says, So Jesus 
also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. And now we're supposed to go to him outside the camp. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, Jesus, was there anyone ever more clean, more pure than Jesus? No. And yet Jesus goes outside the camp and becomes unclean. And he blood pours out of him. And he's covered, this is, we, we gloss over these parts of the Gospels. He's covered, no doubt. No doubt soldiers have urinated on him. There are some passages in the Gospels that make it seem like soldiers have taken advantage of him, but had gotten bodily fluids on him. And Jesus is covered, and everything Leviticus is just deemed unclean. And Jesus becomes unclean. Why? That you and I might be clean. That he might cleanse us through his death. Jesus dies as if he were unclean, that you and I might be clean, that we might be washed. Um, th- th- there was in, in 87, 1987, there was this artist, really controversial artist. His name was Andres uh, Serrano. And he had this piece of art called Piss Christ. And what it was, it was a crucifix, maybe you've heard of it, it was a crucifix submerged in a jar of his own urine. And he sealed the top, and he put it out in New York City, and people lost their minds, as you can imagine. People were like, how could you defile the cross? This is outrageous and unbelievable. This is a disgrace. How could you do this? And then there were, there were Christians who had a different take. Whatever you think about that as art, there's something about the image where when we look at the cross, we're, we're, we're desensitized. And I think part of what Serrano was trying to do is to say, this is what the cross was. Jesus is covered in my uncleanness, that I might be forgiven and made clean. So what does this have to do with us? Part of what it means is if you've been made clean through Jesus' death outside of the camp, praise God. Part of this means, too, is now we get to join him in having a ministry like that. The clean going to the unclean. The clean who, the unclean who've been made clean going to the unclean that they, that they might become clean. Um, I'll close with this. There's a, um, my friend has a story where he, uh, he, had, he had a friend in college who got really deeply into the drug scene and ended up uh, so deep into the drug scene, he was literally spending, like, living in basically a, a, house, a heroin house and was just sleeping there and making any money he could, however he could, to buy more heroin. And my friend's, this guy's dad, uh, was long for his son to come home, longed to find him. He finally, through a mutual friend, found where he was. And he came to the house, and the son was uh, passed out in a bed. And, um, but he woke up and stirred when he saw his father come into the room. And, but he pretended to be asleep because he couldn't face his dad and the shame of what he'd done and, and where, how he was living and the choices he had made. And so he pretended to be asleep. And he didn't know what the dad was going to do. And he thought the dad was probably going to just start screaming at him. He thought the dad was going to just start, you know, yank him and, and, you know, like just drag him to the car. And instead, what the dad did literally saved his life. He said all the dad did, he was telling my friend, all, the dad, all his dad did was he came to the bed, he knelt down beside his son, and he kissed him. And then he left. And then the son couldn't believe what had happened. He couldn't believe the kindness of his father and weeks later he came home and his dad was like you know I never thought I thought I'd lost you and he said dad I want you to know that was the moment where I knew you loved me no matter what 
And there, there's, this is what Jesus is doing. Is in his cleanness, he enters into your uncleanness, the places in your life where you are unclean, and he meets you with the kiss of grace. And in the kiss of grace, he, inv- he, he makes you clean. And you, 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 you are clean. And then he sends you out with him to go do that in the lives of the unclean around you. Let's pray together. Uh, Jesus, would you preach the good news to our hearts that we might believe um, through your work on our behalf, we can be made clean. And would you invite us into your ministry of embracing uh, the unclean. We ask this in your name. Amen.